Hello, ladies. Um, so this recording is not happening in room 114 at MABC. I am currently sitting within four walls in my closet because I must have had a bit too much coffee this morning and not correctly push the record button while I was teaching. So, ta-da! It'll be a bit uh, hollow as you listen, and I'll be pretending that I'm engaging with all of you when I'm not. I'm instead looking at a bunch of plastic water bottles that we hide in our closet from our boys and some boxes that have been not been unpacked yet. Anyway, welcome. Uh, this is the place where I write my lessons, so maybe it's appropriate that I record it here too. Anyway, here we go. All right. <laughs> Bear with me. It's a bit odd. Anyway, last week, Bev gave us such a good and clear lesson, walking us through the true state of our hearts before a holy God. Last week's lesson then built on the week before, priors, Jackie's lesson about the consequences of our depravity. And both of those lessons are driving us into this week's lesson as the culminating point where all the bad news is finally coming to a head and there's no longer any denying reality. We've seen again and again that for the Christian, there is no room for self-righteousness, that the law will not save and was never even meant to save, and that we are all sinners through and through, sinners who need a merciful judge. A merciful but just judge, which Paul points out may seem contradictory, but is actually what makes the gospel so beautiful. And today we get to talk about this merciful, just judge and all the good news he has brought to humanity. But before we go there, we have to sink our feet into the muck of our sin just a bit more. And you might be saying, Ugh, come on, I get it. I'm a sinner, but can we just move on? And I'm going to say, along with Paul, no. Because move on and overlook is all we ever want to do, if we're honest. And when all we ever do is move on, we cheapen grace because we lose sight of just how much we need it. We start to think we're rock stars who just mess up once in a while. But really, we deserve grace, right? And honestly, we just expect it. But if we learn anything from Paul, it's that just as the Jewish Christians had lost sight of their depravity, so have we. And that has major consequences on our love for God and man. Basically, this moving on and overlooking can pose a dangerous threat to our Christianity. And God wants to use Paul to wake us up. Now, before reading our text for this morning, I want to recount a story for you, because sometimes I think stories can help us to better grasp and wrestle with some of the messier and weightier parts of scripture. And this morning, I'm going to tell you about an old but famous novel that goes a bit like this. Once upon a time, there were four brothers, one father and one inheritance, an inheritance that each brother felt deserving of, entitled to, and protective of but an inheritance they weren't sure would ever even be given to them. One brother was sensual and reckless and just seconds away from disowning his father, while still demanding a slice of the inheritance. Another brother was an intellectual who had rejected God, but he was still a brother and still a son, and despite his deep hatred of his father, he too hoped for a piece of the inheritance. 
The third brother was a highly religious man who gave his all on the path to righteous living. He could tell you all that scripture says, and he knew that the law required him to love and forgive his father, even through his worst moments. And he too secretly felt an ownership in a piece of the inheritance. The fourth and final brother was an illegitimate son. He was dirty and unkempt, had a debased mind, and shared nothing in common with his half-brothers. They despised him for his differences, for not belonging, for not thinking and acting like the rest. And he, though so different, still shared some core traits, being a son to their father and being fiercely loyal to him, however illegitimate he was. And even this outcast of a brother held secret hopes of being named in the inheritance for his loyalty. So who of all these brothers truly deserved the inheritance? Well, the author subtly lets us know that none of them deserve it. Not a single one. And then for the remainder of the book, the author fleshes out how none is righteous, not even one. And that is just what we're going to see in Romans 3 today. So keep that story ruminating in your heads while I read our passage. I want you to keep that question there. Who is deserving and who is entitled to the ultimate inheritance? The legitimate sons who are respectable and the natural heirs, the ones who have all the answers? Or the illegitimate sons who not only know very little, if anything, about their father, but they also look different, talk different, and even smell different? Or are they all the same as they stand to be judged? To connect the dots a bit here, from the story to our text, remember that one of the main concerns for Paul in writing this letter is the Jew-Gentile relationship within the Church of Rome. The so-called legitimate heirs versus what some saw as the ignorant usurpers. Now, to help us better interpret chapter 3 and keep it in context, I'm going to reread chapter 2, verses 17 to 21, and then verses 28 and 29, and then I'll run through all of chapter 3. So, Romans 2, verses 17 to 21. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach yourself, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And then verses 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? 
as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In those final verses of chapter 2 and in the first eight verses of chapter 3, what's Paul getting after? Well, Paul is trying to get after some of these deeper hot-button issues that the Jews might have been thinking internally, but would have never had the guts to ask aloud. Questions like, is there even any advantage to being a part of the original covenant community of God? And if no, then is God even faithful if he's breaking this promise? What's the point of all this rule-keeping and all this hard work of mine? And if he's not faithful, then is he even just? Paul answers by saying, yes, there's advantage, great advantage. For one, the Jews were given the very words of God. And those very words of God, the words that declare God's blessing and promises for the covenant people of God, they also declare and promise curses and judgment for the sinful disobedience of that very same covenant people of God. I love how Doug Moo explains what's going on here. He says, Provoking this discussion is the Jewish tendency to interpret God's covenant faithfulness 
solely in terms of his saving purposes. Paul meets this with an even bigger, deeper view of God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to remain true to his character and to all his words. The promises of cursing for disobedience as well as blessing for obedience. And so it makes sense then that to answer these questions in chapter 3 verse 4, Paul quotes from Psalm 51 verse 4. Psalm 51 is David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba, where David admits and declares that God's judgment of his actions and his heart is just, and his sin must be punished. You see, the Jews here in Romans 3 had forgotten that the oracles of God include both the promises that God will bless his people and the warnings that he will and must judge sin if he is to remain a just judge. Ever since God's covenant with Abraham, instituting Israel as the people of God, God has been crystal clear. He is faithful to judge and faithful to bless. And that's what makes him so good. If all God ever did was bless and never curse, if he saw our evil and our sin and just blessed it, how would that be good? If the murderer gets a raise and a cake and hugs from all his friends, how is that just? And would the world really respect a God who is walked on by a people who presume upon him, demand his bounty and his blessing while spitting in his face? No. Justice is good and it is necessary, even when it means our discipline. But he is also miraculously and undeservingly merciful. And we see all of this play out again and again throughout the entire Old and New Testament. When the people of God repent from idol worship and turn to follow after God, there is blessing and bounty. But when they run away to whore after other gods and to curse the very name of God, there is judgment. There is slavery, oppression, loss, death, and immense sadness. And yet, if you read the prophets closely, the main driving picture you get is one of a just God who is so merciful. He does not give the Israelites what they deserve. He runs after his people time and again to sustain them and to keep them, to offer them a way to be clean through the sacrificial system which he instituted for them. He shows his divine forbearance over and over, all pointing the Jews to their desperate need for a once-for-all Savior, for a merciful and just judge. And so we see here that God offers us his righteousness, a righteousness that is beautifully seen in both his judgment as well as his salvation. What the Jews seem to have forgotten here is that this salvation project isn't people-centered. It is God-centered. All of human history is all about God. We see here that the Jews have completely lost sight of that and have instead made this life all about them and their own preservation and their own salvation by their own merit. And so we need to stop and ask ourselves, how often do we make our lives about our own preservation and salvation? presuming upon his grace and standing in our own self-made righteousness as we stubbornly resist his conviction of sin. Make no mistake, 
God has broken no promise here. The Jews have broken their promise to a holy and just God and have gone so far as to question his justice and faithfulness. But if we have learned anything from the Old Testament, it is that God is faithful even when we're faithless. As Moo says, too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory and not for our own blessing. He is the ever-patient, ever-merciful, just judge. He has never changed and will never change. And the remainder of Romans is going to walk us through that in great detail. So we're just getting like cursory answers here. But chapters 4 and 5 will unpack God's faithfulness to his covenant people then and now, to a people who have done nothing to earn their righteous standing, beginning with Abraham. Then chapters 9 to 11 will walk us through the justice of God and how the blood of the innocent has power to atone for the sins of the guilty, allowing us to be covered in Christ's righteousness. And now, because Paul knows he'll pick this back up in later chapters, he shifts gears a bit and re-enters the argument begun in chapter 1 on the sinfulness of humanity. And here in verses 9 to 20, Paul wants his readers to see, as theologian Michael Kruger puts it, that beyond the shadow of a doubt, we humans suffer from a self-perception problem. We think we're awesome. And that was the Jews' problem that we just saw in verses 1 to 8. They thought they were awesome and that God owed them one, even if they continued to refuse him. And that same line of thinking often leads us to say, yeah, yeah, we get that we sin, we get that we do bad things, but really, we're not that bad. We have good in us, we do some good things, the whole world hasn't totally gone to pot. And yes, while that's partially true, it's not because of anything you or I have done. Paul explains that it's because of God's common grace to all humanity. It's because God is restraining the full vent of your wickedness. It's because we live in a world created and fashioned by a perfectly holy God, filled with humans made in his image. Tainted and marred by sin, yes, but still bearing the very image of a holy God. In chapter 1, Paul says that God makes who he is plain to all men through his creation. So yes, because of God's common grace, there is good in humanity. But that good is not inherent to fallen humanity. It comes from God, whose spirit is able to influence all cultures and consciences. So then, what is inherent to fallen humanity? Depravity for the Jew and the Greek alike. Because of sin, we are all the same as we stand before God in judgment. There's a term some of you may know, total depravity. It's a term given to describe what Paul has been talking about for the last two and a half chapters, what we're like without Christ. And the key word there is without. I don't want to lose any of you here, so please hear me when I say that with Christ, we are being made more and more like him, more pure, more holy, more truly good. But without Christ, we are depraved through and through. And then to clear up a common misconception surrounding this term, which is that people are as wicked as they could possibly be, which we've just seen isn't actually the case because God has graciously preserved us from that depth of evil. And I don't even want to imagine what that would look like. 
I want to instead take up Dr. Kruger's revised term, pervasive depravity. I think the term pervasive more accurately gets at Paul's language here. We are sinful in every conceivable area of our life, and often far more so than we think we are. Sin is not just about our actions. It's about our thoughts, our motives, that tiny millisecond thought of self-exaltation that tainted your pure desire to help someone. The little but pervasive lie that we are our own purpose, that it's okay for life to exist only on the surface, that we are entitled to love and ease and happiness, that we deserve it. Or maybe you're like the Jews here in verses 1 to 9, arguing with Paul that your knowledge of scripture and fervent study of theology make you a better Christian than those messy people who don't seem to have any clue what's even in the Bible. You know you're a sinner. You know you're totally depraved. You love to read your Bible. You know the scriptures backward and forward, at least when compared to those around you. You've got all the right doctrine and all your theological ducks are in a row. And that makes you smug. Because you've missed the point entirely. What you have failed to realize is that you're not justified in comparison to those around you. Because Paul says you are the same as everyone around you. But because you have spent so much time justifying yourself through your judgment of your brother, you have shown the true nature of your heart, lacking gospel love because you have made yourself the source of your own justification. So those theological ducks you have taken so much pride in, on closer examination are only staying in that neat little row because... Well, they're dead. Now, don't get me wrong. I love theology. You know that. And the study of scripture is a beautiful thing and a necessary, essential part of knowing and loving God. It is the way that we know and love him. So we must read it. We must study it. And we must care about right doctrine. And if all these things result in a love for God that can be seen by all in your love for your sisters then that is true and beautiful. But if, like Paul's Jewish audience, you take pride in your theological prowess, is that really for God? Are you judgmental of your sisters around you because of their lack of biblical knowledge? Then perhaps you have become a resounding gong, the blind leading the blind, like verses 17 to 21 read in chapter 2. Because your sin is pervasive too. Now remember those four brothers from my Russian story? Do we now have a better grasp of why not one of them was ultimately deserving of the inheritance? None is righteous. And to make it even more clear, there's another part to that story. You see, on page one of the novel, before any of the brothers are even introduced, we're told of a murder. It's the father. Someone has murdered the father and the author sets out to bring justice and see the murderer found out and tried for his crime. Regardless of how wicked and deserving the father may have been, there must be justice for the crime. But then what the author begins to unravel over the next 800 pages is the depths of human sin, the complexity of the heart that regardless of which brother committed the actual murder, all four of them, however pure of heart they may have been in any other matter, each one of them desired the murder of their father, 
even if just for a millisecond. And each brother comes to the horrifying realization that they killed their father in their hearts and minds. And that was as good as committing the crime itself. They are all guilty. Even the purest and holiest of them. The legitimate, intelligent, proper ones and the illegitimate and sketchy ones. They're all guilty. And this is our story too. We are all guilty. You see, pervasive depravity is about the state of our hearts, minds, and wills. Even the good we desire to do and the good we do do is tainted with secret grumblings, lack of forgiveness, selfish ambition, feelings of superiority, feelings of inferiority, fear, pride, jealousy. And all of these things go unseen to the human eye. But I hope you're starting to see this sin, it's pervasive. And to illustrate this even further, I want to pick up that plain imagery Bev started us out with in week one, and that we've continued to pick up ever since. Only this week, we have landed our jet and set out on a scenic helicopter tour of a vast jungle canopy. Lush green trees and waterfalls cover the expanse as far as the eye can see. It's breathtakingly beautiful. But what you don't realize is that underneath that canopy of apparent beauty, in the darkness below, is a zombie apocalypse. And people are eating each other alive. You see, what Paul wants us to realize is that that is the state of our hearts. We are infected and affected by our sin and the sins of others to the core of our being. We are pervasively depraved. I want to read verses 10 to 18 again, just to get your mind around what I'm trying to say here. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So you see, there is a zombie apocalypse in my heart Did you hear that in verses 13 to 18? We are eating each other alive. And it may not look like it on the surface. It likely doesn't look like it on the surface. It's like that jungle canopy, beautiful. We may act kindly and speak nicely with a smile on our faces. But in our minds and our hearts, we are eating each other and ourselves alive. And I know my own heart and mine, and I know yours, so I know yours too. So I know that this is true. If it's in my heart and my mind, it's in your heart and your mind because we are all human and we are all infected by sin. And Paul affirms again and again without a righteousness that comes apart from the law, our death is imminent. Then we come to verses 19 and 20, which bring Paul's discussion of the unrighteousness of man to a summary close. Under the law, no human being can stand. 
every mouth must be stopped of its boasting, and the whole world must stand naked before a holy God who sees all. It is undeniably clear here. If you are in Christ, your righteous status has nothing to do with you. You are the problem, not the solution. If you want righteousness, you need to go outside of yourself to, as Paul says in verse 21, a foreign righteousness. That's how that word apart is translated, foreign, outside of us, outside the law. We need to go to verses 21 to 26. We need to go to the but now. The button now that Martin Lloyd-Jones and Martin Luther and so many theologians throughout history have declared to be the center of the entire Bible and possibly the most important paragraph ever written. Let me read it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so praise God that our depravity and death are not the end of the story. Sin was met with the promise of God's redemptive plan. His love for his children since Genesis 1, all the blessings and judgments, and all the shadows of redemption through the blood of animals, they all pointed to God's ultimate act of justification. That act of God where he declares a sinner to be righteous. The Old Testament indicated that only a pure and sinless man could atone for the sins of broken humanity. And the prophets spoke of that perfect son of man who came on mission to conquer sin and death and hell and restore us to himself, to heal our minds, to purify our hearts, to reconcile our wills. He is Jesus. He took the sin of the world and bore it as his own. And the wrath that you and I both deserve was transferred to him alone. He gets our sin and we get his righteousness. Merciful, just judge. And then enters verse 27. I want you all to hear this. I want you all to hear what Paul is saying to us. Our boasting is excluded. Our high opinion of ourself is excluded. Our smug dismissal of others is excluded. Our sense of superiority is excluded. We have no ground to stand on except the blood-soaked ground we all share at the altar of the Lamb who was slain. And then we move into verse 31 where Paul logically asks, What benefit is the law then? Should it just be overthrown? No. It is of great benefit, Paul says. If not for the law, we'd be lost. The law not only brings knowledge of sin and depravity, but the law also points to our only hope. 
You see, the law is God's grace to us. Don't lose sight of that. Paul isn't just hammering depravity here. He is showing us that since Genesis 1, the law and the prophets foretold of a righteousness that would come to redeem humanity, to gather a people from every nation and every tongue, both the self-righteous law abiders and the simple but lawless ones, to himself, to stand pure, forgiven, free, and righteous. So simple and lawless ones. Stand speechless and full of joy because amazing grace has saved a wretch like us. A sinless Savior died to stand in our place and deem us righteous. So self-righteous law abider, let your love for God through his law be seen in your sincere love for others, in your humility before God and man, and in a right estimation of yourself. To the theologically savvy, Stop your boasting in your knowledge and obedience and uphold the law of God by simply believing in the one whom he has sent. Resuscitate those dead ducks and prove that your circumcision isn't merely outward. By viewing others as better than yourself and by having a sincere love for your sisters that flows from an understanding of the true nature of your heart, pervasively depraved, and of Christ's redeeming blood that is even for you. And to you who don't measure up, you who know you're on the outside looking in, the illegitimate sons, rejoice. Because through Jesus, the justifier, your circumcision of heart counts. You have an equal inheritance in the family of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you gave me the ability to do this a second time. And I ask that it would um, still hit our hearts and help us understand Romans 3 um, in just the same way as if I were actually in that room. Um, and I ask that we would come away from this whole Roman study loving you more and loving each other more. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, ladies, thanks for bearing with me. This was super weird to be in this room. Um, but it's really quiet. Almost too quiet. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to go. Okay. Bye.